0: In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 12 through 14.
1: Well, we are in session 5 of the book of 1 Kings, and we'll be dealing with chapters 12, 13, and 14. And uh, just by way of review as we go here, you know, Solomon... uh, was a king that started off well but had some problems. Personally, he was brilliant, but he lacked moral vigor because he doesn't finish the distance. Finishing well is perhaps something that we should each remind ourselves of. He was excessively self-indulgent. And historically, he, did, he brought Israel to its peak. And the visit of Queen of Sheba demonstrated that, Solomon, all his glory, and so forth. And typically, Solomon, uh, the positive side, it might point in some respects to the millennial reign, but there are some hidden negatives, not only his apostasy near the end of his age, but the 666 and so forth. But the zenith of the kingdom is what we've just come from then, where he had uh, they, from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, from the Red Sea uh, and Arabia to Lebanon, and uh, the tributary states around there held in subjection, and the Canaanites themselves became peaceably subjects or useful servants, and and uh, the immense treasures won by David were, uh, were, however, supplanted with oppressive taxation that's going to come home to roost. So Solomon's failure is going to, the shadow of his failure is going to hang over the book of First Kings. Um, you know, there were three major sins. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 says that Israel's king should not multiply wealth, horses, or wives. And he did all three. He traded in, her- in chariots and horses, and he indulged in foreign wives, and he introduced false gods and false worship. So his self-life had full swing, and we see that uh, commented on him by himself in in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he concludes all his vanity that's under the sun and not of the Lord. So anyway, his apostasy is going to be part of the theme that's going to run through the, the number of these chapters. His excessive taxation alienated people. He was led astray by wives. I know that doesn't happen to any of us here, but I just know it's a matter of record there. And uh, they they made temples to the various... Gods of the uh, of the region, and uh, his adversaries stir up rebellion. In fact, we'll see that Ephraim, the major, the strongest tribe in the north, be- is becomes the center of the disaffection. God warned him in uh, in uh, chapter eleven. Wherefore the Lord said to Solomon, "For as much as this is done of thee, thou hast not kept my covenant, and my statutes, which I have commanded thee. I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant." And that's exactly what. And this is going to echo through virtually all the kings, with just a few exceptions, um, as we go forward. The same, the same issue. But he doesn't uh, to the to the southern kingdom. There's a couple of good footnotes here. He says, "Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son uh, for David my servant's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen." And so we're going to see that exception take place. So we're going to jump in now. That was all sort of a quick snapshot of the past. We're now in 1 Kings chapter 12 where the kingdom divides. Chapter 12 verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel came were come to Shechem to make him king. And uh Shechem of course is a is a uh fitting place in a sense for the coronation of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Um He's, uh, he's the only son that was mentioned in Scripture, at least, and uh, he was certainly appointed by his father to succeed him. Uh, Shechem was where Jehovah first appeared to Abraham in uh, and promised to give him all of Canaan. That was in Genesis chapter 12 where Abram's called. Uh, Jacob later settled there in, in uh, Genesis 33. Joseph was buried there. It's a very prominent place in Scripture. In fact, it was at Shechem when they come back into the land that they... Uh, uh, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they they dedicated themselves to keep the Mosaic Law. So Shechem is a very very key geographic spot, and so this sacred spot is now uh, uh, reminding the Israelites of their divinely appointed destiny as a nation, uh, if they're going to be faithful. And it came to pass when Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, remember he was an exile in Egypt because Solomon was trying to kill him, so he ran off to Egypt into Egypt's protection. Anyway, when he was yet in Egypt, he heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of the king Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt. Um, and uh, But it's obviously he had spies that kept him posting what was going on, and he heard about the impending coronation of Rehoboam. That they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, so they're gathering there for some comments, and says, thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said to them, Depart yet for three days, and come again to me. And the people departed. So he's going to think it over. He's taking some time to consider this very strategic issue. And uh, so they plead for lower taxes during the coronation festivities. He's going to take it upon reflection. It's interesting that Jeroboam is speaking, is their spokesman. That's sort of strange because he was, uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, alienated from Solomon. But he's he's somewhat their spokesman and that itself is significant. Now you realize, if you refresh your memory here, Jeroboam, of course, had been told by the prophet Ahijah that the kingdom would be divided and that he would rule ten of the tribes. That was back in chapter 11, verse 31 and following. But he seems to have st- be standing back to let events take their own course. At least at this stage, if, if Rehoboam would have reduced the taxes and so forth, at least for a while, it might have been uh, uh, a different history. But he takes these three days to think it over, and then in verse six, and the king Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, "How do ye advise that I may answer this this people?" And they spake on him, saying, "If thou wilt be a servant to this this people this day, and will serve them and answer them." and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men. These are the guys that were, you know, the, the carryovers from Solomon's day. So he, he, for, he forsook their counsel. He says, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. So he's turning to his own contemporaries now for their opinion. He said to them, What counsel give ye that ye, we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter? The young men that were growing up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto these people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins." And now, whereas my father did laid, laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father has chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Whew! So that's their advice, and uh, so the uh, the uh, uh, poor advice it turns out, obviously, and uh, it was just the uh, the young men gave just the opposite uh, advice of the elders, but it was apparently what Rehoboam wanted to hear. And uh, so uh, he's going to give a, his reply to his petitioners, as suggested by the younger advisors. And it's almost designed, it would seem, to provoke hostility, that he'd be far more harsh than his father and so forth. His little finger thicker than his father's waist is a, is a hyperbole, intended to express his greater power. He's going to be uh, tougher. And uh, by the way, he was no child at this time. He was about 41, they estimate, from uh, chapter 14. Nor was his decision on the spur of the moment. He had three days to think it over. It was a deliberate choice on what he thought would be the appropriate uh, response. Possibly the king thought, and his counselors thought that intimidation would send the potential rebels scurrying uh, uh, for cover, and uh, it would drive any ideas of insurrection away. Quite the contrary, it seems to have prompted them. By the way, this whip and scorpion thing, a whip was just a plain leather strap, but a scorpion was a term used for a whip with barbed metal points in it. It was used to uh, for the castigation of slaves. So Rehoboam and uh, all the people came to Rehoboam, Excuse me. So Jeroboam and all the people. Notice he seems to be the spokesman already for the discontent. And all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had pointed, saying, "Come to me again the third day." And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him. And spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. And wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite uh, unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Remember, he got that prophecy from Ahijah just before, you uh, uh, in the last session. And so... Uh, even though this is a tide of circumstance, we see the Lord's hand in it. It's interesting. Uh, I've been on th- three interviews today uh, from various radio stations across the country, uh, you know, uh, uh, speculating about the, uh, uh, you know, the impending war with Iraq and so forth. And uh, it's interesting how there seems to be a consciousness that what's going on, you, you can give all kinds of reasons. Uh, why we, why, we, why this is happening. But behind the scenes, what you don't see is there's a tide of events that may be moving in a prophetic way. I think the whole geopolitical landscape is going to be changing over the coming months and years. And uh, I think it's only when we see that the fog lift that we'll really understand that the real dynamics are, are a result of spiritual warfare. We get this clue from Daniel 10. But we see that same kind of flavor going on here in this, that there's a there's a tide of spiritual uh, uh, moves that are really driving the rest of it. Let's go on to uh, picking up verse 16. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. So... uh See, Rehoboam's uh, insensitivity extinguished any hopes, apparently, for uh, economic recovery. And uh, so he alienated the subject and and broke the union. This is breaking the union, then, of the twelve tribes. And uh, the the uh, destiny of the house of David seems to be repudiated by the majority of Israel here. To your tents, O Israel! You may remember that was the same battle cry that Sheba used against David back in uh, 2 Samuel 20. And... uh, so it, uh, it became their battle cry here. And with these words, of course, they turned their backs on the heritage to seek out new paths with a newly cho- chosen leader, Jeroboam, uh, the son of Nabat. And as for the children of Israel which dwelt in the cities of J- Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Now, the only people that stick with Rehoboam is his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. And that's going to be uh, uh, the only the closest countrymen st- uh, stayed with him. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, which was over the tribute, and all. Now <laughs> he he has a gift for doing strange things. You know, first, he uses very intimidating language, which uh, obviously uh, backfired on him. And he picks this guy Adoniram, or Adoram, it's a variant spelling of the Hebrew, uh, who was the personification of oppression. He was the foreman of the forced labor, and he uses him as the ambassador uh, to these rebels. Well, uh, uh, no surprise, uh, they uh, stoned him with stones, and he died. And therefore, the king Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot and flee Jerusalem. In other words, he Rehoboam himself escaped with his life, barely. Um, so he's, uh, he's it's, 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 the tensions are starting, and they're going to get worse. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. The term Israel here, being that, uh, it's often used to be the whole nation. Here it's being used for the northern group of tribes. Uh, or Ephraim and the, the surrounding ones. What should have been a glorious national celebration with the crowning of Rehoboam uh, turns. He he ends up having to flee for his life. We have uh, the you know, God's own appointed uh, dynasty, the house of David, um, being rebelled against by the people, and, and uh, so it came. Oops, now we're, let's talk a little about the divided kingdom because we're going to at this point we're going to be dealing with the northern and the southern. Kingdoms. Now Rehoboam's folly, of course, the ill-advised expansion of excessive taxation is part of it. That becomes, of course, Jeroboam's opportunity. What's behind the scenes, though, it was it had been prophesied that Jeroboam would be. He was promised through, by the Lord through the prophet that he would be uh, uh, having this thing. It's interesting that uh, it wasn't his doing that caused it. It was Rehoboam's folly here that really pro- provided the opportunity. But he then doesn't. He 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 really blows it he could have been um he could have had an incredible destiny but he establishes alternate alternate uh, worship centers we'll see why in a minute and uh Dan in the north and Bethel in the south and the nation's going to be split into two the northern kingdom under Jeroboam which will be called Israel the house of Israel not the nation is the house of Israel the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom called the house of Judah under Rehoboam now we're going to find a uh, Rehoboam will reign about seventeen years, Jeroboam about twenty-two. Uh, but uh, uh we're going to have a whole series of kings in each of these, and it'll get a little confusing because obviously they're not coterminal. They they each one have different lengths. But uh we're going to go through four major kings in the house of Judah uh in first kings, and we're going to go through uh, eight kings in the northern kingdom. Um but I want you to notice that the house of Judah is one dynasty. It's still the Davidic dynasty. Uh, Israel will have a, a, a four, at least four dynasties. And we're going to go from about 931 B.C., when this split takes place, to in the neighborhood of 848 B.C., about 83 years. And we're going to, in this chapter, look primarily at the careers of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And uh, the succeeding chapters, of course, will deal with the rest. To give you a broader snapshot of what's coming, we're dealing with first kings, and this, uh, uh, the house of uh, uh, Israel will go from bad to worse. Their kings will get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, until finally, uh, they will, uh, they'll, after 210 years, they will go into the Assyrian captivity. The house of Judah doesn't do much better. It goes from bad to worse, with some exceptions. There are... Uh, uh, Four conspicuous, probably eight in total, good kings among their string. of There tw- are about 20 in each list. They will go into captivity, but they will come back from the captivity. The northern kingdom will get wiped out as an identity totally forever. And we'll talk more about that as we go, but that's the perspective. So the southern kingdom will last uh, a century longer than the uh, the northern kingdom. You would think that the southern kingdom would learn from the northern kingdom's experience. As they go from bad to worse and the prophets keep preaching to kings, if they don't listen, it goes. finally gets judged. You'd think that the house of Judah would learn from this. A few did, but not many. This is all echoes of Solomon's apostasy. The sins he planted get multiplied in his sons and, 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 and following. It's disturbing to realize that sin is contagious and sin multiplies. So anyway, let's get to verse 20. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Now that's a little complicated because part of both Benjamin and Simeon had been folded into that. so it's it's not it's not as crisp as it may sound here. And when Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with, with the tribe of Benjamin. A hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men, which were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So he is going to go uh, try to fix all this with force. He's got one hundred eighty thousand soldiers to, to, to who are going to fight their brothers in the ten tribes to the north. So things look like they're heading for big trouble, but God still has his hand on this. The word of the Lord came to Shimei, the man of God. He's a prophet. You're going to notice all through the Chronicles here, of uh, the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, that uh, you're going to find two kinds of leaders, the kings, the rulers, and the prophets, that not always but generally are primarily speaking to the kings. And the prophets were feared, even by the kings that didn't agree with them. They were their, their, their authority was characterized by miracles and all kinds of strange goings on, but they were they were recognized as the word of God on the one hand, and yet the kings didn't listen. They heard, but they didn't do. It didn't drive them to commitment, which is what it was all about. But anyway, the, so Shemi is one, the first of these that we're going to encounter here in this chapter. The man of God saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord There's that identity phrase This is not just an opinion now They are speaking on behalf Of the creator of the universe Thus saith the Lord Ye shall not go up Nor fight against your brethren The children of Israel Return every man to his house For this thing is from me They hearkened therefore unto the word of the Lord And returned to depart According to the word of the Lord Give them credit Uh, Rehoboam saluted and says Yes sir And they went home Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. Now see, they, Shechem is where we had all this going on, but that's in the area of Ephraim. And, uh, it's in, it's technically in the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom seceding, uh, obviously this is going to end up being northern kingdom territory. Uh, Jeroboam naturally takes Shechem to be his, his, uh, center. Because Jerusalem is still the, the, going to be obviously, uh, all the kings of Judah ruled from Jerusalem. We're going to have three different capitals in the north as you'll see. Because we're, later on we're going to, he's going to build Samaria. And we're also going to run into Terza. They're all within a few miles, all within seven miles of each other. And, uh, so these three Shechem, Samaria, and Tirzah will be the three capitals of the northern kingdom at various times. But you notice in this last verse, he also fortifies Peniel, and that's presumably to give him some, some protection from the uh, east and from the southeast, from from other tribes, and of course also from from the uh, tribe of Judah. So Jeroboam said, "His heart now shall the kingdom return to the house of David." He's worried. See, he's not trusting the Lord here. He's starting to use, his, you know, rely on his own counsel, so to speak. But he recognizes that since Jerusalem is the capital of the southern uh, tribes, and that's where the temple is, and that's where the worship is, he's got a problem. Because people, even though they may be loyal to him politically, they'll be going down there to worship, and he sees that as a threat to his rule. He's got to contrive some way to wean the people off the temple and and the mosaic Mosaic Judaism, in effect. He says to himself, "If these people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of the people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, the king of Judah." So that's that's the predicament as he perceives it, and uh, uh, it's it's, uh, it's uh, again uh, it, it's it, it seems logical, and yet it is um, a major sin. He was divinely chosen by God. And he was given promises that his dynasty would continue and prosper if he obeyed the Lord. So rather than somehow trust the Lord, he, he uh, builds a whole counter um, approach that's going to not only destroy him, but it's going to cast the seeds for uh, uh, a handful of dynasties following. Twenty kings are going to rule in the northern kingdom. And not one of them is going to turn to the Lord. All, all because of the, of the seeds he's planting in here. Instead of one stable dynasty, they're going to have several of these. This is, the, you can look at this, these verses right here as Jeroboam's first act of infidelity to Jehovah. Okay. So he has a heart of unbelief is really what we're seeing here. And when you have a heart of unbelief, you have something else that accompanies it. And that's fear of your personal safety. If you're trusting the Lord, you have no fear for your personal safety. You don't have to, you don't have to. He's in charge. But see, he doesn't trust the Lord and, and associate right with that, right up front. They're going to kill me and they're going to turn again and so forth. So whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's interesting, there are, scholars have different views of this. Some scholars, um, um, Albright and others, say that he was really just trying to create a substitute way of worshiping Jehovah. I don't buy that for reasons you'll see coming, but I want to share it because there are some scholars that sort of give him the benefit of doubt in a sense. I don't think so at all. I think these are throwbacks to the golden calf of Egypt. They're not. Uh, it's just that simple. He is, he is bringing them to idolatry. In fact, he makes two of these. He's going to put one in the south part of his kingdom and up the north. He puts one in Bethel, which is close to the southern border of the northern kingdom. It's north of Jerusalem, but it's the southern part of their kingdom. And the other one uh, they put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. Now, in the map that we looked at previously, Dan is way up in the north. It's It, it's, it almost becomes symptomatic or idiomatic of the of the north. And Bethel is the southern part of the northern kingdom. It's just north of the northern border of Judah. And those are the two worship centers. And uh, they become infamous for that very reason. Now, it's kind of interesting, just to look ahead a little bit. The tribe of Dan is the tribe through which idolatry first enters the land. But so is Bethel. Bethel is in Ephraim. It's interesting, when you get to the book of Revelation, you're going to discover that when the 12 tribes are there detailed in chapter 7, there's a tribe missing tribe of Dan doesn't appear, and there's much speculation about why and so forth. Part of the reason has to do with the fact that Dan was identified with the entrance of idolatry into the land. But what you'll also notice that many scholars miss is you don't find Ephraim either. It's there. It speaks of Manasseh and the house of Joseph. Well, if you take Manasseh from Joseph, what do you got left? Ephraim. So the Holy Spirit put Ephraim there, but it didn't use his name. In fact, if you study the scripture, there's 20 times the 12 tribes are listed in the scripture. You'll notice every time they are, the tribe of Dan gets the back of the hand, in subtle ways. The way the text is structured, there are there are, there are genealogies where each tribe's gone through with the genealogy. When you get to Dan, Dan and others, they're not detailed. They're just little editorial things. If you watch, you get sense to the Holy Spirit singled them out, and uh, so. But let's move on. Uh, verse 31. And he made a house of high places. And made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. And that's a very key uh, verse. He not only made idolatrous worship places on high hills, on the high places. That was against by that way, that was specifically prohibited in the Torah, for this very reason, because those high places are associated with, with the Canaanite uh, idolatry. But he made priests of a common people. See, there's a total departure here from the instruction that God gave through the Torah because they were supposed to be only the sons of Levi.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 house one